Today we're talking to Dr. Andrew Wilson. Andrew is a psychiatrist and businessman. He is also an investor and chairman of the board of Heyday Medical. Jim and I also work for Heyday Medical, but the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are our own. Welcome to Hey Jim, Jim, and operating, uh, I'm operating out of the construction zone here. So I'm going to throw over to you, Andrew. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here with you and Dr. Jim. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been uh, working various settings as a psychiatrist most of my professional career. I had an interest in serious mental illness and worked at the sort of pointy end of mental health for many years at places like St. Vincent's in Sydney. I've also had an interest in chronic pain and fatigue and actually back in the day was doing an MD in, in that area. So I've had quite a long-standing interest in that as well as more recently doing telehealth in rural and remote Australia. I've also had a, got a, had a corporate day job career, but that's probably not that relevant for this, except it's an interesting, it's an interesting question around the commercial angle of that. So happy to chat about that a bit if we have some time, but yeah, looking forward to the discussion, Sam. Yeah. Welcome, Andrew. Lo- lovely to have you on the, on the podcast today. Just wondering with those difficult and complex patients that you've been seeing over your career as a psychiatrist, what, what sort of changes have you seen in regards to treatment options available for these difficult to treat cases? Has there been much, much movement in regards to options that you have available? It depends in a way on the patient. There's various categorizations of that. I think patients that have got that sort of complex intersection between physical and mental health problems, and that's a pretty common presentation. So patients with chronic pain syndromes from various conditions, sleep disturbance, often comorb, significant comorbid depression or anxiety. Uh, I don't think really there's been much forward progress in the last quarter of a century, to be honest, Jim. There's been people with severe psychosis, which is a different kettle of fish. Yeah, there's a few, some interesting treatments coming as there are in mood disorders, but that's complex patient group. Also people with behavioral disturbance as well. Yeah, not really much, I don't think, which is why I think cannabis is potentially an exciting option. But you have referred a few patients on to get treatment with medical cannabis. What, what mm. are those types of patients that you're looking, who you believe might benefit from using cannabis as a treatment tool? There's probably three main groups, really. The first is that group we were just talking about. So I, mm. I see a lot of patients with chronic pain and comorbid and psychiatric conditions, often with very significant functional impairment. These are people often that have had very serious workplace accidents with amputations, crush injuries, and things like that. And to be honest, I'm perhaps unfortunately, but I'm often one of the last sort of stops on the train lines for them. They've been through pain clinics. They've been through all manner of treatments and none of which has particularly worked. And my view is, and they're often on significant amounts of opioid as well as other psychotropics and generally have not tried medicinal cannabis. And, and to me, the question is, why wouldn't you for those patients really? It's, as a result of doing that, I've certainly seen in many patients quite significant symptomatic alleviation. So that's one group. The other group mm-hmm. I think is PTSD. And I've, I've seen some really amazing outcomes there, patients is that the treatments for PTSD are not great, both psychological and biological. And so I've certainly seen patients where they've had significant down, if you like, sizing of the other psychotropic meds that they're on, which is often quite substantive and 
Mm. Drugs like Seroquel, which is, causes a lot of weight gain and metabolic problems, which causes secondary problems. And then the third group, and this is one of the ones I think is most interesting, patients with behavioral disturbance, particularly with a core diagnosis of autism. And yep. we've seen a couple of patients there that have had pretty dramatic improvement with cannabinoids, which has been nothing short of miraculous in one case in particular, I'm thinking of. So yep. those are the three broadly, Jim. So you like not being the final stop on the train line anymore. You've got some, you've got somewhere to send these difficult patients, hey? It's great to be able to ask the stop on the train line, but also a lot of these patients are largely without hope too. They've often had a lot of really negative experiences in the healthcare system. And I do think this is the opportunity to engage with them. And, and this has been part of a much more holistic approach to how they manage their conditions. I think, and make them a real partner as opposed to a stereotypic patient, I think is also part of the way forward for them. A hundred percent. And and I see cannabis as a very much a, a functional tool because really what we're trying to do is upregulate and support the body's own natural endocannabinoid system. And that's responding yeah. to a lot of those uh, positive health behavior sort of changes, enjoyable exercise, eating the right types of foods, reducing sort of stress levels creating connection and actually having purpose and meaning in life. Do you feel that those elements within psychiatry have been put into the spotlight as much as drug therapies or, or other sort of therapies? Is there a strong inclination towards trying to help patients find those functional sort of functional goals? Look, not as much as they should be. As again, given that I'm often one of the last stops on the train line, one of my favorite lines of questioning is to ask patients who have you seen before, and it's usually a bunch of psychologists, often a couple of psychiatrists. And, and, and I ask them, if I was a fly on the wall, what would I, have, what, what would I be witnessing? And typically it's very narrow fields of inquiry, both by psychologists and psychiatrists. One, and the, the broad array of holistic treatments and really patient-centered approaches just haven't been taken. And I think if often these patients, these people, they're not sitting there because they want to, they're sitting yeah. there because for a variety of reasons, they've got often got trapped in a negative cycle. So if you can break through that and actually create some positivity and symptom relief that allows yeah. them to be more active, go to the pool, interact with family and friends, which starts to generate a positive spiral. So I think that's a really important point you've made, Jim. That's a necessary part of recovery, I think. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to get patients to try and engage in those behaviors when they're under extreme sort of suffering, which a lot of these patients that are. So there's sure. an element of having to alleviate the burden of suffering, at least partially, to give, give them that sort of op opportunity. But the real sort of long-term goal is to get them using their body's own systems as much as possible and getting off any sort of exogenous sort of compounds to rely on making them feel better. But I don't think that, I think that's an element of medicine that is under appreciated and valued across, across the board, because it, you know, requires a lot of coaching and it requires a lot of implementation of knowledge that we haven't really been taught throughout our medical training. Has there been any greater talk uh, uh, around other sort of psychiatrists or people in sort of similar fields around the role of the endocannabinoid system in regards to some of these diseases that you're seeing the benefit of with, with cannabis? Definitely. I think there's no doubt about that. In the last two to three years, there's been a very significant change, I think, in interest and interest particularly 
knowledge is a trait, interest is the lead indicator, knowledge is a trailing kind of fact. But I think there's definitely interest and increasingly knowledge. And again, I think people are generally open to it. Cannabis, I think, was unfortunately, when I go back, when I was training and subsequently, largely Mm. demonized because of the legitimate research showing that ingestion of high-dose THC was a likely correlate or precipitant of psychosis and or depression in young people. And I think young people's a different category. I think that you've got to have a different Mm. level of caution potentially with all psychotropics for that matter. Mm. But I think as the science and the knowledge about cannabinoids has developed, I think there's a cut through message around that, that, that sort of yesterday's story, and it's not a contemporary story about cannabis medicine. And I think psychiatrists, in my experience now, are increasingly open to it. Um, Yep couple of colleagues of mine who have a real specialty interest in PTSD are really on, on board as seeing that as an incredibly useful part of their armamentarium. It's wonderful to hear, Andrew, and I have to say that psychiatrists in general as a group have been some of the most open and receptive to learning about cannabis-based therapies and the, the endocannabinoid system because you know, they don't, don't want to be seeing their patients that are suffering and, and knowing that their medications they're using are, are necessary because that person is suffering so much, but understanding the, the longer term sort of harms and morbidity that can come with some of those, you know, treat, treatments as well. So they have been a very receptive group, but it's also a group of patients that come with, with those potential sort of risks and, and hazards with, with cannabis as well. But you're talking about the patients where you've seen the most benefit with cannabis. They're ones that seems to correlate with significant endocannabinoid system dysfunction at the core of the development of their illness. And it's likely that we're starting to use and starting to manipulate and, and affect positively the, the system that is most dysfunctional or at the root cause of some of these issues as well. So that's pretty, pretty exciting. Andrew, mm. you mentioned pain specialists. Do you, is it common for psychiatrists to work in a care coordination model with pain specialists or do you typically operate independently of one another? Look, it's, I think it's more the latter in the, in public, sort of public sector pain clinics, which are typically located in tertiary institutions, psychiatrists typically have a consult liaison type approach. So they can, they consult to and work with the team there, but then they're very much not the lead actor, if you like, in that. And then you've got in the private sector, you've got both. And I must say, I've found, because I see, do see a lot of pain patients with kind of intractable pain of various sorts. I do, I think it's, I think the pain specialists vary quite a bit. And I've got patients where the pain specialists, they say have been incredibly supportive, writing letters to support funding requests from insurers or DBA or whoever. Clearly there are some that have really got a view that it's really not something that's got much of an evidence base behind it. But again, I would say to them, but you've tried 10 meds on that patient, but you've tried, you want to get them off. Some of those drugs, they're causing them to have gained 20 kilos and so on and so forth. Really, why wouldn't you use it in those circumstances? If, even if I still think it could be promoted a lot more than that, but even in those, for those people, why wouldn't you use it? And you typically refer patients to a clinic or to a, a cannabis GP that you think is common within the specialist's fraternity? Yeah, look, I think it is. There's, there's no aversion necessarily to doing that. It's really just a point in time for me. For example, I see quite a lot of patients with 
ADHD as well. So I've got quite a heavy script burden with that. So it's actually probably more administrative than anything else. Although I do think it's complex and there are a vast array of different types of cannabis medicines that can be used, both in terms of delivery mechanisms, combinations, and so on. And I, I personally think I, my patients are going to get the best result if they see somebody that's really focused on that in, in a very singular manner. They'll get a better treatment than, than I can provide. And so in that sense, I feel it's a it's a it's a and tell us a little bit about your journey from, you obviously we've been aware of cannabis as a medicine for a long time, but where in, in the last few years did it pique your interest and what was it that made you decide to, to start exploring that for your patients? Probably, obviously there's two, probably two angles there. One, I did, um, I started seeing more patients so for a period of long period of time, I was mainly working with the very seriously mentally ill and that's probably not a population whilst high dose uh, CBD may well have a role there. Practically speaking, that's a tough nut to crack for a variety of reasons. And so it wasn't really that relevant. And in fact, what we mainly saw was really the negative effects of poly substance use, including cannabis in those patients. So really just wasn't in my wheelhouse from a practice point of view. When I started seeing more patients with intractable pains, PTSD and stuff, you start to think, well, crikey, what else could I be doing? And that's saw a few patients having it, but then I think through conversations with people like Jim got interested in it and actually started to do my own sort of due diligence in reading on it. And then from actually then really trying it with the patients and seeing the benefit, as well as talking to colleagues, you start to build a bit of momentum around this is something that's really useful for patients. Look, the complex patients, I can understand wanting to refer those complex patients on as well, especially when they've already been through so many different sort of treatment options, seeing so many different specialists, you say they're lo losing hope. You don't want to be implementing a sub optimum. My hope for the future is that doctors, be they specialists or be they GPs, feel comfortable to have a, an understanding of some products and like a GP does with say antidepressant prescribing, they'll prescribe, they'll have a couple of go-tos that they'll try first, and then they'll refer on to someone who specializes more in this field. And I hope that's what we see in the future rather than it being necessary for cannabis clinics to write the majority of scripts for these patients because not all cannabis clinics are, are doing it for the right reasons as, as well. No, I, I agree with that. And as, as I said, I think it's a point in time and also possibly goes into a little bit against the grain of holistic medicine as well. So I think it's really a matter of, that's just an inevitable journey. I think we're on as a profession. Then there's a couple of areas where there's been an, an explosion of patients seeking treatment for, and therefore practitioners needing to be exposed to treatments for ADHD, just as an example. Mm. And that's not, that's because there's much more awareness of it, not dissimilar, I think it's happening. And I think, so people are really upskilling and looking at what do I need to do? I think this is very similar. And so I'd say in two or three years, there's no reason why a lot more psychiatrists and GPs for that matter will be prescribing because Provided they've got the right training. And You've talked about some of the positives, Andrew. What about some of the negatives? What are the fears that you have around the medicinal cannabis market? And if you play the tape forward and let's say in 10 years time, there was a recreational market. What are your concerns about A, medicinal and B, right? I think firstly, medicinal cannabis isn't a magic bullet, right? So I think, and so you've got to have realistic expectations. And I think it comes down to appropriate patient selection as well. So I think 
there's a risk that when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail clinically. And you've, we've seen that, we've seen that over and over again. So I think, and I think there's a danger of that happening. So I think that kind of clinical rigor around just like any medicine, how it's being used is important. It's not without side effects and you do have to be careful. There's a really interesting sort of area of uh, intersection patients with bipolar disorder that might have PTSD or a condition. So how do you manage that? There's no doubt that some medicinal cannabis products, particularly containing THC, could be something that could trigger that. So again, it's well described. You can do that, but you've got to be, you've got to do it carefully and under appropriate supervision. So I think that's with that, I think with the rec market, if that happens in Australia, I think my big concern with that is first of all, young people, I do think the sort of developing brain is particularly sensitive to psychotropics. I do really worry about that. And I think what we know is that I think in a rec market, you just, the amount of cannabis consumed goes up and that's just, I'm stating obvious there, but I think that just means there are more people that are potentially vulnerable to it, particularly going into it without adequate knowledge, particularly around high concentrations of THC. I think that's a concern. And I think the risk there is we're going to see adverse mental health impacts from just from it, because you've got, you've got just increased numbers of people being exposed to it. So I do have concerns about that. There's a lack of buy-in for the actual health journey necessary for, to get the benefit from medical cannabis in a recreational market as well. People are just taking it for the experience, but not actually looking at how they can use it to engage more positively in, in the world around them, because it's not losing product selection, going to a rec market and it all being set a high THC is potentially problematic, but people not using it in the right way without proper guidance is where I think we're going to see a, a, a lot more of those negatives, say something like depression. THC can potentially be beneficial if it's regulating sort of sleep patterns or they're using it to get out of bed in the morning to actually do things, but it can also just enhance and, and magnify some of that a motivation or the, the comfort of just being within their own sort of limited sort of s- sphere. And it can actually make depression worse. So much of it is not about the medicine or the condition of it, it's how people are using it. And it's all about getting appropriate sort of access to the right information and for people to, to be monitored, to make sure it is going in the right way. And I feel like we have a, a strong risk of losing a lot of that going into a, a recreational sort of market. So I do hope that there is, if, if it does happen, that guidance from health professionals is still a part of the model, uh, even if it does become a recreational sort of model, but maybe I'm not even thinking that will happen. We're going to have, there's a group of people that are definitely going to be self-medicating. We know that humans have self-medicated for thousands of years, but I think there's a missed opportunity there because now there's a chance that they'll get the right clinician and the right cannabinoid, which is maybe not have much THC in it at all, for example, Mm. but that won't happen necessarily in a rec market. What would you do about prescribing to people under the, uh, or under a certain age, I won't put an age limit on it, Andrew, but if you had a magic wand. And you were the TGA, what would you do on that front? What sort of safeguards would you put in place? There, there are well-worn pathways for that, I think, in terms of with other Schedule 8 medicines. I do think, and again, put aside where the cutoff is, I, I, I think I would probably want that person to have seen a, a pedi- have a pedi- pediatric or child or adolescent psychiatrist opinion probably 
before they're given, plus the usual consents around care and involvement and things like the usual things you do. And that's stock standard with other sort of kind of prescription meds. I just think that's good practice. Um, the risk there, of course, is it creates reg burden and you just can't, people say, I can't get in to see those people, so I'm going to miss out. So that, look, that's an issue too. So I don't have a, I don't have a magic wand, but I do think there's got to be some checks and balances with, with younger people. There should full stop with psychotropics and this is no, no different. If you take an extreme example in WA, people under the age, I think it's 14 or 16 cannot have ECT. And obviously I'm not suggesting there's any similarity. I'm just using that as an example of a regulatory or just no, no matter if you had a hundred psychiatrists say that child needs it, they won't get it. You can go, we're not going to go to those extremes. I, I, I agree with you there, Andrew, that there should be oversight from a specialist for that age group. If those specialists have adequate knowledge on the medicine that's that they're trying to approve or, or, or disprove to be appropriate. And so with all of the other conventional medications that they, they might be, you know, involved in that process, they have a good understanding of their risks and benefits and how they might look as a treatment journey for that particular patient. The biggest issue I think we're finding current in the current medical cannabis sphere is that has been put into place for anything other than a pure, pretty much a purified CBD product, a pediatrician or a specialist in that field for that patient under the age of 18 is now necessary to provide a letter to say that they agree that a trial of medical cannabis is, is appropriate. But the one is, like you said, there's a li limitation of resources for those specialists and, and therefore very, you know, time, time delays for, for treatment for people who are suffering. But real biggest issue is the lack of understanding and knowledge of the endocannabinoid system and cannabis as a medicine within those specialist groups that means that you know, no one's going to recommend something they have no idea uh, uh, about. There's, so there's always fear of the un unknown, especially when we've come from an environment of prohibition and illicit drugs being problematic. And they obviously can be problematic in those populations. But ha have you got any ideas on how we educate specialists in medical cannabis, even if they're not going to be ones who want to prescribe it or recommend it. I think it's, there's a the fundamental knowledge gap that we're missing, make it so that the, all of these appropriate safety nets are implemented in the right way. Look, I think, again, I think we're getting there. As I said, I think we're a long way to, if you fast, if you flip on five years, you're in a different, completely different world than you are now. Yeah. So, but look, I think again, like really, if I just speak to psychiatry, there's a well-worn CBD, CPD pathway. I'm, there's a faculty of adult psychiatrists, which I'm a member of. We had an incredibly successful forum last year on medical cannabis, and I think aut and, and autism as well, which is another area psychiatrists don't know much about, but the medical cannabis piece tended by several hundred, I think people are really right. interested. So I do think there's programs, there's, you have online programs, face to face, mm -hmm. whatever, but the, the, that, I think engaging people through continuing professional development, which they has to do is the way forward. And, and I think there's a lot of interest in that, but there's a dearth of materials. There's a dearth of those kind of opportunities really. So the more we can do that, the better, I think. And it's great that there are those, there, there are a lot of clinicians out there wanting to know more, understand more as, as medicine evolves, but I also recognize that there are a lot of clinicians who have done six years of study at, at, at university and then they've done all of their internships, specialty training. 
they've been training for 20, 20 odd years, they get to the end of that and they feel if they haven't heard about something, then it is likely irrelevant. And yet the endocannabinoid system seems to be involved in every sort of physiological process within the body. And it's the most abundant G protein, the seven transmembrane G protein coupled receptor in, in, in the brain. How it, it seems like that education really needs to start at the university sort of level. But there's a, a significant resistance to a lot of these educational educational bodies to start incorporating this type of knowledge knowledge in there. Do you have any yeah, sort of comments I, on that? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think that's I think that's true and it's weird. Yeah. I think there's an industry engagement piece with the academic institutions to and I think you need a couple to move forward in a more progressive way and that will start that snowball rolling. I think the, the colleges, and obviously some colleges are more relevant than others. I don't think too many orthopedic surgeons are going to be prescribing medical cannabis. But it, it, the, I think they're on board. I think what's interesting in psychiatry is that there's you've got huge amount of interest in ketamine that's been now available for uh, depression. You've got psychedelics now being approved by the TGA for depression and PTSD. Novel therapies, and I think cannabis... I don't think you necessarily want to sort of, I'm not lumping it together with ketamine and psychedelics, but I'm saying there's a number of new treatments that are coming through that really you have to know about. I've got patients now who I'm referring through with treatment resistant depression for ketamine. I've got to know about that. I didn't, did I know about that really five years ago? Not really. I knew about it. I didn't know anything in detail, but I got people asking me about it and I need to know, I need to refer patients. I think people are going to be, it's the doctors, it's also the patients. More patients, I'm, I'm finding patients aren't asking about it, but when I asked them about it, they said, yeah, I've thought about that, but I've been ever to bring it up, right? And so I'd, they're really keen to have a conversation. I reckon that's going to change and more and more patients and or their family are going to say, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jim, one of the, the in the first responder and veterans community, there's a huge amount of peer-to-peer education and encouragement going on for people with severe PTSD to really consider medicinal cannabis. And that's driving a lot of interest. And I think that's great. It's patients looking after their own care. The doctors aren't. I think a lot of patients though are open to it, but won't bring it up with their, with their doctor. I found this when I first started prescribing medical cannabis, I I thought that I was going to be getting a lot of strong negative reactions to the suggestion of trialing for these patients and these were conservative middle and older age people who had never touched any illicit substances in their life but they're all extremely grateful for the opportunity to try something sort of and and i think a lot of doctors are held back because of that fear of being perceived in a certain light by their patient group as as well when they're working with what could be seen as a a fringe fringe sort of medicine yeah yeah i I do. I must, if I go back a couple of years ago, I would have done the same thing. I said, look, you might, you, I don't want to freak you out. Or you're going to think this might be a bit crazy. I don't do that anymore. I don't because I don't think actually as a, as a treatment option. And I, I find that fine, but that's probably because of experience now, but I don't find that as really anything. I virtually, the only time I've had any kind of, I think, real anxiety from patients. And to be honest, I haven't, I have, this is something I haven't gone into yet. And it's actually down to cost is patients with schizophrenia. When you say, look, 
I'm just letting you know, CBD could be an interesting option for you. If these are people with treatment resistant symptoms mm. and people go, wow, I don't know about that cannabis. That's what set me off when I was 16 or something. Like, so you can understand that, but yeah. otherwise I just virtually never get a negative reaction now at all. Mm. To be honest. Must be a pretty exciting time in many ways to be a, a psychiatrist. It's, there's been a, it, it, in, in certain ways, there's treatment modalities and options available haven't developed, as you said, for a quarter of a century. And now there's a, there's all of these new options that have previously been put in the, the they're dangerous, stay away from them type of type drugs. And now they're actually being used as valuable sort of treat, treatment options. Do you feel that most psychiatrists are excited by these opportunities or is there a lot that are, fear, are fearful of the potential sort of repercussions of being part of this first wave of prescribers for these medications? No, I don't think, I don't, I think most people are excited. There's always, and this is fair enough, there's always skepticism around the evidence base. Doctors are taught to be scientists in a way and, and to look at the evidence and weigh that up and the, the, the randomized controlled start study and the number of them and meta-analysis are still, they're tools that people are very familiar with and there's nothing wrong with them. They're not the be all and end all necessarily. So I think that's always a, something that needs to be worked through, but no, I think people are, I do think though there are, that that's all counterbalanced with lots of problems in the mental health system around access, particularly, and that's really impinging on people. Cost is an issue to cost. It's, it's an issue for many pe people I see with cannabis medicine who are often extremely socioeconomically challenged. They're on pensions. They're struggling to put food on the table. So that's an yeah. issue. To get ketamine, I recently got a quote from a patient to get ketamine. It's $20,000. Right. These are significant. Potentially we're heading into some significant kind of how can that, questions. Sorry, how can that be? How can it be $20,000? How can it be? You, it depends if you need to be, you, you, if you're going to need to be in an inpatient unit, so the intensity the of the, the treatment. It wasn't the drug cost itself. It was the treatment. The drug cost is, the drug cost is part of it. So for S-ketamine, which is the intranasal formulation. Yeah, that's, there's, there's a significant cost of access. Although it's approved, it's not on the, but for ISD or subcutaneous ketamine, that's a lot cheaper, but still you've got a, it's the wrapper if you like, the wrapper of the service component that leads to that. And there'll be the same thing with psychedelics. It will be the same kind of cost. Look, these are in their infancy. We all know there are issues with access to cannabis and cost. And I think we just got to work through that in the coming years, to be honest. Yeah, there was a trial out of Black Dog, I think it was in Sydney, that looked at subcutaneous ketamine twice weekly at relatively low doses and had some pretty great results for treatment-resistant depression as, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great because it's a much more affordable, an affordable sort of option for, for ketamine there. What about driving, Andrew? You prescribe a lot of products that are intoxicate products. You, you prescribe a lot of medicines that are intoxicating. Where does cannabis sit on that landscape for you? And what's your general views on prescribing intoxicating medicines? It's a fraud area, right? Um, I think though, it's a pretty, it, it, one level, it's pretty black and white to take just let's not focus on cannabis because I, or well, my view with cannabis is it, it is an intoxicating medicine like many others. And I don't know why, and I don't see why it's treated any differently. So in that regard, I think it's pretty, it's our driving laws for cannabis are, are anachronistic and you should treat all potentially intoxicating medicines the same. It, the, the law is actually very clear on this actually as well as a doctor. If you prescribe a medicine, 
you need to take due consideration with the patient as to is it going to be intoxicating and if it is intoxicating they shouldn't be driving so the other issue that's complicating though is the underlying condition so the same thing goes if somebody's severely depressed for example we know that impacts on their con- cognitive function right so the question should they be driving so it, it, it it's, it's actually a complicated area and i think you just got to be use common sense and time to actually talk to patients and their families about it and get them to develop some, some, you know, kind of guidelines and use boundaries so that it doesn't happen. I, if somebody's taking 20 or 30 milligrams of the lanzapine or five or 600 milligrams of quetiapine, which are both highly major tranquilizers, if you like, they're going to be impaired. Most people, if I took, if I took it now, you wouldn't get me off the horizontal for at least 24 hours. For, yeah. I couldn't, not shouldn't be driving a car. I think we, we need to take a step back and look at the whole thing, but don't pick on cannabis. It's crazy. I, I think you're right. Like it's illegal for people to drive impaired. Like it doesn't matter what it is. If they're sleep, if they're sleep deprived, if they're, if they are impaired, whatever the medication is, they can still be fine for driving impaired. It's just that with, with cannabis it's just that you, you don't need to be impaired as long as if it's detected you can be fine which is which is ridic- ridiculous so you shouldn't be driving your car when you're taking benzodiazepines right. or other tranquilizers if you're feeling impaired by it even though you're not going to get swapped at the roadside if you have an accident you're going to all your insurances are probably going to be null and void because you were impaired because of your medication and you shouldn't have been driving and under those circumstances yeah. I, I think it's a blind spot in medicine, to be honest. And when I was up until recently, I was working at a teaching hospital. It's an area I'd spent quite a lot of time personally with trainees talking about because these were patients that are often on heroic, massive amounts of medication. And you'd say, have you talked to them about driving? And the answer most uniformly was no, right? So I just think that put everybody at risk, the patients, families, and mm-hmm. themselves. If you're not, If you're not thinking about driving, and medication. It's especially hard in Australia though, as well. We live in a country that is so large and we don't, we're not all living in densely populated urban environments that have great public transports by telling someone they can't drive, you're taking away their liberty and their capacity to actually leave, to do all the things that's going to make life good for them and potentially worsening their condition or their mental health by taking away that, that capacity to just do regular stuff. In, in your day job, driving. sorry, yeah. Andrew, in your day job, you see a lot of the healthcare system at work from a private health insurance yeah. lens. What What are your views on what's happening in terms of tick and flick prescribing and some of these other clinics where care is suboptimal to the needs to sell product? I I can't see a future for that type of medicine, to be honest, for a bunch of reasons. Most importantly, I don't think, I don't think it's good medicine. So that's the first thing, right? So I think you've got to ask yourself, should practices, which are not good medicine continue? So that's the first thing. Second thing is increasingly there's a spotlight being shone on those type of practices from professional regulators. And I make the distinction from the medicinal regulators and the professional regulators, look at what's happening with telehealth and the guidelines that have come out of APRA, the college, and we've now got professional indemnity insurers 
say, we're not going to ensure. And that's the asynchronous telehealth, for example. So I think if you're practicing asynchronous telehealth, you need to have a good look in the mirror because you may find actually something goes wrong. You're in a world of, as a, as a doctor, using that. I think, I think for some patients that are going to want, it's like fast food, right? It's probably not great for you, but it's, it's easy to get. There's always probably going to be some fast food medicine, if you like, but I just don't think, I, I, I can't, I think it's possibly as the, the wave has been surfed too far into the shore and I think people are going to hit the rocks. Yeah, you could mount a case for it in some instances where it's a script repeat for a drug we've been on for a long time. That's again, where does where does it start and where does it end? Is always the tricky part of legislating. I assume. Yeah, for sure, I agree with that. An area that I'd just like to ask about because there's, as you said, you're seeing a lot of patients with ADHD, and it seems like that is becoming a much more widely recognised diagnosis, and the the treatments available for those with ADHD are stimulant-based medications, which seem to have profoundly beneficial effects when used correctly in, in the right patient population. But there's also that potential for abuse or on sale of those types of medications as, as well. What I'm seeing with a lot of my patients and here from a lot of people in the community as, as well is that patients who are using medical cannabis appropriately, but are also prescribed stimulant-based medications, a lot of psychiatrists are saying they can't use medical cannabis at the same time as their, their stimulants. We've had a little bit of a conversation off, off air, but can you can we open the dialogue around this and try and clear, clear, the, clear the muddy water, I, I guess, a little bit? Yeah, look, it's it, getting slightly horses for courses. It probably depends on what's happening for the patient as well. There are some patients that have done, that have actually been self-medicating their ADHD with a variety of illicit substances. It could be, they might've been using illicit cannabis, often illicit stimulants and doing very well with them actually, even though that they were obtaining them illicitly and look at medicinal cannabis as a way of helping managing their symptoms and often quite successfully. Or that there are patients with comor comorbidities, some of the things we've been talking about. Patients with ADHD have PTSD chronic pain as well, right? That could be the case. To me, it's illogical. I don't see why, what I do, I do steer clear of uh, putting patients on stimulants where they're using significant quantities of illicit cannabis. Yeah. Uh, and in some states, in fact, you can't. In Tasmania, for example, the Department of Health requires three random urinary drug screens over a period of three months before patients even go collect 200 and go past go there, right? But that's probably a bit over the top, but I can see there's some logic in that. So I think illicit cannabis is a different kettle of fish. Yep. I think patients on medicinal cannabis where it's clearly beneficial, it's being used appropriately, I, I don't see what the issue is with it. It's yeah. the, the, and, and again, there may well be some patients within that that you'd say, that's probably not a good combination, like with anybody, right? But it, just to have a broad brush, you know, you can't. It's to me illogical. And certainly I've got many patients that are taking both. There are, there are patients with ADHD that find uh, medicinal cannabis a helpful adjunct. Yeah. And adjunctive treatments for ADHD, like clonidine or guanfacine, are used quite a lot, often to help with sleep disturbance and agitation. I don't see why you couldn't consider medical cannabis in the same way. I don't think it's probably not the, it's not the most evidence-based frontline treatment. Like the stimulants are clearly, but not every patient can take stimulants anyway. Yeah. So I think it's useful to have in the kit bag. Yeah. Look, and I, I find stimulants are 
for the population that can tolerate them a, a really efficacious and beneficial medicine that can turn people's you know lives lives around with with that sort of diagnosis. I find cannabis in conjunction with stimulants can be really beneficial, especially winding down, transitioning from being on on the stimulants to trying to find a find that sense of relaxation in the evening and then actually regulating sort of sleep patterns. And I do have patients who can't t- can't take stimulants. It causes them a lot of agitation, worsening anxiety. They lose excessive amounts of weight, these types of things. And, and CBD predominant medications with a little bit of THC can be really beneficial at helping people stay focused and not be continually distracted by overwhelming number of, of different sort of thoughts. But I can see both cases where cannabis on its own, when stimulants have, haven't been appropriate, can be beneficial or used in, in conjunction with stimulants. But yes, there's a lot of patients who are being denied treatment of stimulants because they're using medical cannabis and getting benefit from medical cannabis by a, quite a large number of psychiatrists. And I just wanted to see whether that was something that was being implemented on a per psychiatrist basis or whether there was a, a, any orders from governing bodies around around the use of the two combined. No, I think the, 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 the guidelines are, this is an area where you need to, it needs very careful consideration and that's appropriate. And of course that's the case. Yes. I was, wouldn't, I wouldn't, if I'd seen it, for example, if I saw a patient for the first time, I, I wouldn't give them a script for stimulants on that basis. In fact, I generally wouldn't anyway, right? But yeah. in that scenario, I'd probably want to get to know the patient a bit more. I'd probably want to definitely do what you should do anyway, which is talk to get some corroborative information from a partner or a trusted advisor or whoever it is. They get collect the correct information and get a bit of longitudinal assessment and then do that. It's the same, a similar issue arises with patients with bipolar disorder. That's historically been a sort of line in the sand. You'd never give a bipolar patient stimulants. I think mm-hmm. there's a body of evidence emerging, and certainly in my practice, is that's just not a blanket rule. Some patients, absolutely, just like you wouldn't, some patients you wouldn't give THC to, but it's not a blanket rule. So, so if you do your job properly, there's no reason why you can't do that yeah. uh, I, I, for, for the right patients. And I just thought on that bipolar and, and ADHD and stimulants, I I do feel that there are some patients out there, just, this is my own sort of anecdotal experience with different patient sort of populations, but a lot of patients who are being diagnosed bipolar type two, where they might have ADHD with comorbid depression and their natural sort of state is a more elevated sort of state, but they're going in because of the dysfunction caused by it, they're going into these states of depression. And for those patients to get that, the wrong diagnosis and miss out on an essential treatment, obviously is problematic. but. Coming back to this, the illegal use of, of drugs, is that because there's a concern that they'll not get the same efficacy from the stimulant treatments, or is it because the regulatory bodies are worried about them misusing those medications or on-selling them because they're in contact with people in that sort of illicit sort of world? Do, do you know? I think it's all of the above. Stimulants are probably, you know, essentially, you could argue that it's one of the higher tradable items in the Schedule A wardrobe as you like. I think it's that contact with the illicit. So I think from a regulatory point of view, it's that contact with the illicit drug, which is prima facie. And this isn't unreasonable. I think you'd say that, is that a risk factor for misuse? I think we'd say it is because a, they've got a track rec, current track record of it. Okay. Yes. So I think that's definitely true. The other thing though, I think is you don't know what they don't and you don't know what they're actually having. And yeah. that might vary on a week to week basis. 
So that's to me clinically, that's the biggest issue. You know, you don't know what you don't know what you take. It's like going to the pharmacist and they give you an assorted box of pills, and you don't know what. You take. <laughs> to me, that's and the patients get that typically. That's the bigger argument I find. So you don't know what you're taking, and so you, you just you can't we, we can't do this until you sort this out. Mm. And a lot of patients, and often particularly the ones that are um, are self medicating. Uh, with illicit cannabis for their ADHD primarily, when you say, look, you just can't, you, you, you just can't do that. But what's going to happen is you're going to find you don't need to anyway, because yeah. you get the stimulants are going to treat your ADHD and often then saying, and I need you to have some drug screens as part of, that's often really helpful because it gives them a bit of a sense that there's a backstop kind of process that they need to be honest with you. And that's a, that's, that's your classic kind of authentic conversation with the patient around what needs to happen. I've had patients go into particularly the ones using a lot of illicit stimulants. Also, you need to go in and you need to actually come in, you need to go in and actually go through a detox, probably a rehab program. And then at the back end of that, we can start that even while you're in the program. And I've had several patients do incredibly well with that approach. Hey guys, I'm going to have to end this because uh, I've got some tradies who need to cut power and <laughs> we're going to get severed. Well, that's it. Look, I think, we've, yeah, we've gone on for a while and to be honest, I, could, I think we could pick Andrew's brain all day and, and we will, we'll get him back on for, for another yeah, episode. Let's also do a call out for folks to send through some questions for Andrew. We get him back on for an AAA, ask Andrew anything, which is probably. Yeah, sure. Very happy to, very happy to. Psychiatrist. Very happy to. Yeah, no, it was a great discussion. Yeah. Right, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Okay.